Hey, my name is Brianna, and you're listening to the FCC Grayson Podcast. God is doing some incredible things here at First Church. To learn more about FCC and maybe plan your visit, head on over to FCCGrayson.com. We hope today's message gives you hope, inspires, and encourages you in your walk with God. Let's dive into today's message. I'm going to be sharing with you this morning. We're going to be diving back into our, um, our Ephesians study. Uh, we've been going through the book of Ephesians. We're spending the whole year in the book of Ephesians. Uh, and this week we're going to be starting into chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, open up to um, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Um, now, a couple of months ago, I had this dream, okay, and this is not, I'm really praying that this is not a prophetic dream, and you'll know why after I tell it, um, that it was just before I preached last time, and it was that I got up on stage, I started preaching, you know, I was getting into it, and then I got all tongue-tied, you know, when you, you know, that sort of dreaded, you get tongue-tied while you're speaking, and then I just stopped, and I froze, and I said, you know what, I'm just going to sit down on a chair over there, and I just sat down, and Ben was over here, and he was just like, everything okay? He came up and had to rescue me, and I was sitting there, I was like, I just don't want to do it anymore. So that's my standard, okay, for this morning. That's what I'm hoping to not do. Um, so Ben's not even here, so he's not able to rescue me if I do that. Um, so uh, if you don't know me, my name's Thomas. Uh, I am the youth pastor here at First Church. Um, been here for about six-ish months, maybe a bit more. Um, absolutely loved it. Um, as you can tell, uh, if you don't know already, I'm not from here. Um, I speak weird. Uh, and I get reminded of it on a regular basis by a lot of the people here, which is fantastic. Um, so I also have to remember that I have friends back home watching this, so I can't dilute my accent too much or they'll ridicule me, but I can't be too Northern Irish where I get ridiculed here, so I'm trying to find that balance. Um, but I, yeah, I grew up in Northern Ireland. It's like a tiny little part of Ireland um, that's technically owned by the United Kingdom. It's this really weird situation. Um, and if you don't know about Ireland, um, we kind of had a bit of a troubled past over the past... 30, 40, well, a couple of hundred years. Um, and uh, I grew up in the late 90s, early 2000s, just after um, all of the, what we called the Troubles were over. And the Troubles were basically, you know, these, these two factions, which were Protestants and Catholics, uh, killing each other, bombing each other, shooting each other, paramilitary organizations, doing all this kind of stuff, um, attacking each other. Um, and that was the Basically, straight after that is when I started growing up. Okay, so it's a little different to here. We don't have Catholics and Protestants killing each other here. Um, that I'm aware of. <laughs> but, you know, so that was kind of the, my upbringing, okay? So in elementary school, or what we call primary school, um, I went to this school called Castle Wellen Primary School, um, and it was a small school. Uh, we had like 54 students in the entire school, and it was great. We loved it. But we got paired up with this uh, other school called Drummer Road, okay? Drummer Road School, and we hated Drummer Road. Um, I don't think my parents even know the story, and I know that they're watching, but we hated Drummer Road. There was this rivalry that we had. It's probably like East Carter and West Carter. I don't, I don't really know the whole story there, but something like that, maybe. But we just couldn't stand each other, okay? We were just always on each other's nerves. We were always, anytime we went on trips, we would like fight with each other and like try to prank each other and do all of this, this kind of stuff. I had no idea why for the longest time. Until I was about 17 years old, I was sitting down with a friend of mine from elementary school, and it just dawned on us that we were a Protestant school and they were a Catholic school. And it was just this passed-on hatred that we adopted for no reason whatsoever. Um, it was just passed down to us. Do you know what I mean? It was so, I mean, it was ridiculous. They called us Castle Smellen. We called them Dummerud. And, you know, there's just this classic rivalry of schools, you know. And, uh, I mean, that story is kind of random, and we'll kind of get back to that a little bit later. But... 
that gives you a little bit of a backstory as to the culture that I'm from. Um, it's hyper-religious. Um, it's kind of like the Bible Belt of the UK. <laughs> um, you know, it's hyper-religious, hyper-political, both wrapped up in two. Um, and uh, it's an interesting place, um, for sure. Beautiful, but full of difficulties at the same time. And then I moved here. Uh, how long have I been here? Three years? Two years? Two and a half years? Something like that. Um, so he got here to get married, and we're actually going through our green card process again on Monday, like sending everything off. Stressful time. So prayers would be much appreciated applying for our 10-year green card. Um, but yeah, that's kind of what, what, what my story's kind of like. You know, came from a different country. I'm now here, and this is now my ministry. Absolutely loving it. Um, I'm really blessed to be here. No plans whatsoever in my life to come to Eastern Kentucky. I'll put that out there. Um, but God had different plans, and it's been absolutely fantastic. Um, so like I was saying earlier, uh, we're going to be diving back into Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verses one, 1 through 3. Uh, I'm going to read it here. Uh, so Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Um, says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for um, your word. Lord, I pray that you help me to articulate this um, effectively, Lord, and remove my words, remove my thoughts, um, fill me with your spirit, speak through me this morning, uh, and let us dive into this together so that we, may, we all may learn um, what you have to teach us. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, this passage kind of comes across kind of like a bit doom and gloom, okay? It's kind of, I mean, this is, I mean, I kind of joke with Ben, this has been a bit of a running theme. You know, the first time I ever preached here was on death. Uh, the second time was on a small topic called the gospel. Um, I'm trying to condense that into 20 minutes. Um, and this week, you know, we're talking about the power or the prince of the power of the air. Okay, so, you know, I mean, granted, he's done much harder topics than I have, but um, we're going to take a little bit of time and actually focus in on who this character is. And this is a key character in the Bible, and it's one that we're not very good at talking about. Um, we don't like to talk about him. Um, we kind of try to ignore him. Um, but I think it's really important that we grasp who he is, what he does, um, and uh, just basically what to think about him and how to be careful around him. So th this, this passage has that phrase, the prince of the power of the air. Okay, and you might have heard this character by multiple different names and titles. Um, you have uh, things like the devil, uh, Satan, or more accurately in the Bible would be the Satan, the Satan. We have Lucifer, which is often how he's referred to, or Jesus calls him Beelzebub at some point. Um, and you've probably heard all of these before. Um, you know, he, he's mentioned in Genesis, right on the third page of the Bible, right through to the end of Revelation. So he is very clearly a key character the whole way through the Bible. So how on earth do we go about talking about him and defining who he is? Uh, and typically I've usually found if you want to figure out uh, what something is or who something is, let's start with talking about what he's not. Okay, so here's, here are a few things that um, the devil is not, okay? The devil, uh, well, first of all, let's start with the fact that his name is not Lucifer. His name is not Satan. Uh, his name is not Beelzebub. And his name is not the devil. Okay, every single one of these are titles. Okay, they're all titles that are given to him uh, by the biblical authors. And they're used as ways to talk about him. Okay, so, you know, we have the devil, um, which, uh, which translates to, you know, the slanderer or the accuser. Uh, you have Beelzebub, which means the lord of the flies. 
Uh, you have Lucifer, which means the morning star. It's just Latin for the morning star, meaning the one that clings on the longest before he goes down. Um, you have the Satan, which means the adversary or the opposer. Now, why, why, am I, why is that important? Well, the important thing is when you think about who God is and the importance of God and his name, in the Old Testament, um, the, the biblical authors would never even speak his name. It was so powerful. Now, we're at a point where we have a beautiful relationship with our Father. We can say that his name is Yahweh. He calls himself Echia, and we call him Yahweh and the great I Am. And he has so many titles as well, but the, the power of his name was so inspiring and so powerful that people wouldn't even speak it. But this is the incredible thing, is that our enemy in the Bible is not even given the dignity of a name. Okay, he's not given the dignity. Nobody, everybody's like, you know what, don't pay, like, don't care about this person that much. Don't care about his name. Just worry about what he's trying to do to your life. He doesn't even get the dignity of a name. And the dignity of a name in the Bible is so important. So let's just take that into account to start with, is he does not even have the dignity of a name. Another thing that he is not, okay, is he is not some mythical force. This is kind of a common thing coming around, uh, especially in the West, and our understanding of evil and the devil, uh, is that he's, he's, he's more of a poetic understanding of what evil really is, right? You know, you might hear that sometimes, like, well, the devil isn't an individual being, but more just a, an encompassing of all evil. And I think that's so dangerous to believe, because if we think that he's some fluffy gunk floating through the air that we just have to maybe try and dodge every so often, we don't take him seriously. But the fact of the matter is, in the Bible, he is, um, every single time he's talked about, he is used with a singular male pronoun. Um, and he is addressed, and very literally, to a single individual. And Paul and Jesus took him incredibly seriously. So he's not some mythical force, okay? He's not, he's not uh, um, like a bit of gunk floating through the air that's just this essence of evil. He is a very key individual who is out to sabotage God's story and God's plan in your life and mine and in the church. So yes, he is a key individual, but another thing that he's not is he's not a big red beast with horns and a forked tail. Okay? I don't know where we got that from. Uh, I, I probably should have looked into that, but we have no idea. I don't know where that came from, but it is not from the Bible. Um, in fact, we only have one description of him in the Bible, uh, and that's in Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 12 through 17. Uh, and if, I'm not going to read, read through it all, but he is called beautiful, full of wisdom, and perfect in beauty. That's who our enemy is, not some big red-horned devilish thing. No, he is beautiful. He was an angel. He was, he was majestic and powerful, full of wisdom and might and power. Uh, he sat at the right hand of God at one point. Like This is an incredibly powerful, beautiful, and in that passage as well, musical being. That's who we're fighting against. Um, is not some gunk some force floating around out there, like something in Star Wars. Um, but no, we're, we're, we're tackling a, a, a very key individual in the Bible who is beautiful and powerful and strong and incredibly wise and smart. But who does Jesus think that the, uh, the devil is? I think that's really important if we want to know how we're supposed to think of the devil. I think it's important that we realize how Jesus thought of the devil, right? And then imitate that. So Jesus and Paul both talk about the devil in very similar ways. Um, and I'm going, to read, I'm going to read a passage uh, from Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, which is when Jesus is out in the desert, okay, and he's getting tempted by the devil. So he's, he's going through all these temptations, and I want you to pay very close attention to the second temptation. So Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, 
says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing for those 40 days. And when they ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Then the second temptation, And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been given to me, and I will give it to whomever I please. If you then will worship me, it will be all yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall not worship the Lord your God, and, only, and him only shall you serve. You shall, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. So let's, I mean, verse 6 and 7, I think that is so key, okay? So here the devil is saying, right, look, bow down to me, and I'll give you everything on this earth. I'll give you money. I'll give you wealth. I'll give you power. I'll give you control. I'll give you the nations. And if I was writing the Bible, and if I was taking my interpretation of what Jesus would have said in that sentence, I would have said, you know, Jesus then said, oh, well, that's not yours to give away. That all belongs to God. Jesus doesn't say that. In fact, Jesus very much accepts the fact that the kingdoms of this world, money, wealth, power, all of those things are in fact the devils to give away. And, and he says it right there, they have been given to me to hand off. So, so this, this is something that we have to take very seriously. The things of this world, money, power, control, wealth, sex, relationships, family, everything, can all, like, all of the big power structures and economies and everything of this world are his to do with whatever he pleases. And he offers them freely um, to whoever will kneel to him, especially to Jesus in this moment. Now, that's not even as far as it goes. We can take it a step further, and Jesus and Paul both say that the Satan, the, the accuser, the devil, is the God of this world. It's the only other person that Jesus ever refers to as God, and he uses a small g, the only other person he ever refers to as God is the devil, and he says he's the God of this world. And that's in John chapter 12, verse 31, if you're interested, or 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, is when Paul says the same thing. Even in this passage, the ruler of the power of the air. This world, this earth, everything around us, it's his. And it's a, it's a terrifying thought, because I always grew up believing, like, oh, you know, hell was made for Satan, and he's down there burning, and it wasn't really for humans, but that's where we go, and all that kind of stuff, if we don't follow Jesus. But the fact of the matter is, if you read Job, it's clear that, I mean, there's a passage in there where it says that Satan, you know, God sees Satan, and he's like, what were you doing? And he said, oh, I was just walking up and down the earth, patrolling my estate, looking at things, seeing how it's going. That's, that's who our enemy is. He is not a fluffy Thing floating around. He is a very real, individual, powerful being who, is in, who has authority over all of the nations of the world. And I say all of the nations because uh, I'm including here America. Um, as much as we, we, we do, you know, we have, we have a different ethical system than a lot of the other countries in the world, and we do like to, you know, have that phrase, you know, for God and country or in God we trust. Let me tell you, the exact same thing is true back home. In Ireland, we say for God in Ulster, which is where I'm from, and we think that we're God's country, but we're just killing other Christians for God. Trust me when I tell you that he can manipulate all of this stuff. And that's, that's where I want to get to next. Okay, so we have this understanding of who this character is. He's incredibly dangerous. He's incredibly smart. He's incredibly beautiful. 
um, and he is your enemy. Uh, and the biblical authors take uh, this, this Satan, the accuser, very, very seriously. Uh, in fact, he's talked, again, from Genesis through Revelation, the whole way through. He's talked about consistently. So clearly he's someone that we have to talk about. But the important question as well is not necessarily just knowing who he is, but what does he do? Right? You know, it's good to know what, what someone is or what he's like, but what does he actually do? What's his job? Right? What is he trying to accomplish? Uh, and for this, we're going to jump over to the book of Revelation. I realize we're hopping over to multiple different scriptures here, but the main thing is we're looking at this book of Ephesians, okay? this letter written to the church in a place called Ephesus. Um, and there is actually another passage written to the same church, um, and that is in Revelation chapter 2. Uh, and Ben has mentioned this multiple times in our series so far, um, and we've talked about it a lot, and it's one of the main reasons that we're going through this book is because this is so potent for us today. This passage is so potent for us. Um, so, this is John. He's, on, he's in like an ancient day version of Alcatraz called Patmos, and he is in prison, and he has a vision of Jesus. And Jesus tells him what to write and send letters to the churches. So these are the words of Jesus to the letter in Ephesus. So, uh, Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, meaning Jesus and God, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and thrown them, or, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and, for, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned your first love. You have abandoned your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, the reason that we're talking about this um, is that our enemy is so good at manipulating good things and using them for evil. He's so good at it. It is, it is, it is what he's, be, he's best at. And he did this right from the very start. You know, if you look at Genesis, he uses two lies to Eve and Adam to get them to eat the fruit. Right? They, they kind of tempt him, or he tempts them by saying, you know, like, you know, you can learn what it's like to be God and, and know what good and evil is. It's a good thing to know what good and evil is so that we can live by that. That's a good thing. But he, he manipulates it and twists it. Uh, and the second thing that he says, um, which is so important for us to grasp, is did God really say? Did God really say? Now, I just want to put this out there. I don't think that the devil has had to come up with any extra lies since Genesis chapter 3. I think those are the same two lies that we deal with all the time. Um, you can define good and evil by yourself, right? You get to choose what's right and wrong. That is an absolute lie. And secondly, um, did God really say this? Does the Bible really say that? Do you know what I mean? And, we, and that's so common. We have so many preachers out there who are preaching things and manipulating the, the gospel, the good news, and making it say whatever they want it to say. Some people are out there preaching the gospel saying, look, you give me money and God will make you rich. And the difficult thing is that if you want it to, the Bible says that. If you manipulate it and use it in that way, the Bible says that. The fact of the matter is, God did not say that. That's not at all what he meant. And if anything, the one thing we're promised on this life as believers is to suffer with Christ for the sake of our eternity and glory. 
There are so many things that he manipulates and uses against us. And one of the biggest things um, that I still see today here happening in America is a manipulation of what is good and what is evil. And from both sides, okay? So we have, we have one camp who say, oh, well, we can do whatever we want. Just, you know, let, be, you do you, you know, follow your heart. It's terrible advice. I don't even know if my heart's on my left or my right, so how am I supposed to follow it? You know, like, I can't remember. But, like, you know, we're co- called to follow our heart. Do whatever you want. That's, that's horrific advice. Terrible, terrible advice. And then on the other camp, you have people who are so, like, finger-wagging at people and just so demeaning and horrible towards other people's lifestyles. And there's very few in between. And, and I realize, look, I realize I'm not from here, okay? I'm not American. I didn't grow up here. And that can mean one of two things, okay? Either it means that I am not qualified to talk about American culture and the problems with it and the good things about it. It either means that or it means that as someone who's not from here, I can see what the problems are very clearly and I can see what all the good things are very clearly because they're not normal to me. Like there's multiple things that I've been able to adopt in my life through our marriage that have been cultural differences. For example, back home, we do not encourage people. We just don't. We don't say nice things. Um, We are incredibly negatively sarcastic and mean and harsh. And the more friendly you are with someone, the meaner you are, right? That's just kind of like banter, you know? And and we call it this, we have this incredibly dark sense of sarcasm. And I thought that was totally normal. And then I came here, I came here and like all the Christians are like being like, oh, great job. And I was like, great job. Who says that? Like nobody, what are you doing? Don't compliment me. Kylie found this when she was in Ireland and she was was, uh, living with a whole pile of college students. And the guy came out into the corridor and was getting ready to go. And she was like, oh, that jacket's really nice. You look really good. And he was like, just floored. He's like, nobody ever does that. What are you doing? <laughs> like, we don't say nice things to people. Literally, in my friend group, the nicest thing that you could ever say to someone was like, oh, that, didn't, that wasn't too bad this time. You know, like, that's some of the nicest things that I was ever told by my friend group. So it was one of those, that's kind of a weird story, but it was one of those things that I realized, oh, encouragement. This is a good godly thing that I'm not using in my culture. I need to adopt that and make that a good thing in my life. At the same time, there are things in this culture that are bad. There are things in this culture that the church have adopted as good that scare me to death for the church. They really do. They scare me to death. And one of those things, and, and I realize that this might offend people, is our absolute obsession with morality, with good and, with good and wrong. Our absolute obsession with it. Um, now, here's the thing. <laughs> Knowing what's good and what's wrong is great. Please keep doing that. Okay, keep focusing on that. Dive into the Bible to figure out what right and wrong is. But there's a line at, at a point where that is our primary focus. And that is exactly what um, Jesus is talking about in this passage. You know, he's talking about like, um, you, you know, you're against those who are evil and you've tested those who call themselves apostles and you've, you know, thrown them out and you, you know, all this kind of stuff. And that's great. But I hold this against you. You have forgotten your first love. And I just want to tell you that I think this is one of the most relevant passages to the American culture today, and to many other cultures as well, but we're here, so we're going to talk about that. And unfortunately, we just have this obsession with calling out and pointing out um, sin, which again can be a good thing. But the moment that you place your morality and your understanding of ethics and all of that kind of stuff, the moment that you place that above Jesus, you've completely missed the point, and you've forgotten your first love. And I'm guilty of that too. Okay, I love getting into deep theological debates and like 
talking about dispensationalism versus you know, covenant theology or whatever that means. I don't really know. But you know, I love all of that stuff. But then I've also noticed at times that sometimes I hold my job, my ministry, my ministry, which is to tell people about Jesus, sometimes I hold that above Jesus himself. And that's wrong. That's so wrong because we completely missed the point. The moment we place Jesus below anything, whether that is your political views, your understanding of what's right and wrong, your ministry, your families, your jobs, you've missed the point. Um, now, a lot of that wasn't in my notes, so I've got to find where I am. But our enemy is so good at manipulating these things um, and turning them into bad things. Um, uh, so again, that's why I told that story of my, um, my home right, in Ireland, because we're, we're messed up. <laughs> I mean, it's cool. Grass is really green, and it's nice. But we're messed up people, and we, we've been killing each other for decades, probably centuries, over theological differences. Um, now here, we don't necessarily see that, but we have an absolute obsession with holding up morality. Again, a good thing. But the moment that you put that above Jesus, it's over. Now, in, in preparing for this, I was talking to a friend of mine back home. He was my youth pastor, um, kind of crazy guy. He's going to be here at some point in the next year or so, and you'll probably get to meet him. But uh, he, was, he was saying that he came to America, and he was here for two months, and he was driving around with a friend, and he was listening to Christian radio um, for, for two months. And, you know, they talked about everything under the sun, you know, you know gun control, health care, um, abortion, marriage, relationships, um, taxes, all of this kind of stuff. Things that we've got to talk about, wrestle with, all of those kinds of things. And he was getting into it. You know, he was getting riled up with the people and, you know, really getting into the whole debate of things. And after two months, he, he was telling me this and he was like, he realized they didn't mention Jesus once. The whole time, he was here for two months and he was getting into all of these big fiery debates, right? You know, like, you know, what, what's a, you know, well, Christians need to be for this. Christians need to vote this way because that's what the Bible says. And they don't mention Jesus once. They don't stop and say, isn't it great that we just have a wonderful, amazing Savior who died for us? Isn't that incredible? Isn't that incredible that we have a Savior who died for us? But 99% of the time, we talk about oh, well, you know, this person's going to raise taxes, or this person's pro this or anti that. Or th like, do you know, and that's our primary concern. Now, here's the thing, and I realize I'm, I'm probably upsetting people when I'm talking. Here's the thing. Voting is good. Do vote, okay? Care about these things. Um, that is your duty as an American. It's not necessarily your duty as a Christian. Now, your Christian beliefs can inform who you vote for. Absolutely, do that. But... Your duty as a Christian is to love God with all your body, mind, and soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's your duty. Um, number one. And, and I know that that is going to wrestle with you inside because you know, we're all wrapped up. Everything is intertwined. Politics and faith have become one thing. And Ben and I were talking about this in the past. We have this, we have this obsession with trying to get the church in control of things, right? We've got to get our morals and stuff put into policies and all of that. You know, we want, we want to get there. And that's an admirable thing to aim for. But Ben was saying this to me on Tuesday, was that the, uh, the time that, we, that the church ruled the world is now known as the Dark Ages. Did you notice that? When the, when the church ruled the world, we had crusades, we had mass murder, we had rape everywhere. And it was terrible. But what Jesus says is that if you want to lead, go wash people's feet. Right? And that doesn't make sense. Okay? And like, trust me, I understand it doesn't make sense because my brain wants to say, well, the best way to do it would be to get into Congress or get into the presidency and make these things happen. But let me just tell you that making murder illegal doesn't stop murder from happening. It just means there's a consequence. 
Making abortion illegal doesn't stop people from doing it at home. Making homosexuality illegal doesn't stop people from having sex who are gay. Now, now, again, these are good things that we want to strive for. Don't get me wrong. These, you know, we've got to uphold our morals, but it starts by loving your neighbor. If you want to see real kingdom impact, if you want to see the world change to Jesus, love your kids and show them how to live for Jesus. Love your neighbor, the person that you despise the most, potentially. Love them to bits. And this is something Ben talked about last week. There is nobody outside of the realm who's, who's appropriate to tell the gospel to. We have to go about and share the gospel indiscriminately to everybody. That includes people here at church. It includes the leader of ISIS. It includes people of the LGBTQ community. It includes sex offenders. It includes murderers. It includes drunkards. It, it includes the immoral in any capacity. And that is so hard to say because there are so many people on that list that I don't want to talk to. There are people on that list that I have my own bigotries, my own right and wrongs in my head that say, that's so terrible, how dare they? But when I realize that, as Paul says, I'm the worst of all sinners. Like, I'm so messed up, people. Like, <laughs> I don't deserve to be up here on a stage. I just don't. But it's a beautiful thing that I get to tell people about Jesus indiscriminately. So again, if you want to see real life change happen, just love Jesus passionately and love your neighbor as yourself. That's literally all we're called to do. And again, do care about morals and, and the laws of the Bible and all that kind of stuff. That's good. Don't get, don't get me wrong. But whatever you do, be so careful about placing that above Jesus. There's nothing more damaging to our culture right now. Nothing so polarizing. Just, just so, to put this into perspective, I was talking to a friend of mine in Lexington um, who's an atheist. Um, and this was sort of when around the election time and everything was incredibly tense. Um, from both sides, everything, everyone was upset and everybody was acting up. And um, a lot of people um, claiming Christianity were acting violently and aggressively in many different ways. Um, and this guy said to me, the reason I could never become a Christian is because of how they act. And I just want that to sink in. That absolutely broke my heart. Absolutely broke my heart because my assumption is, well, I, don't, I could never become a Christian because I don't believe that Jesus died and rose again. I don't believe that there is a God. No, I could never do that because of how they act. That, I mean, absolutely broke me because I'm guilty of it too. I really am. Like, I can be lazy or I can, I can be selfish and I can, I can be grumpy and angry and I can mess up in so many ways. And the problem is that most of the time, you know, we talk about sharing Jesus with people and preaching Jesus to people. Um, if we're not acting in line with what we're saying, they don't want anything to do with it. They really don't. And that's, I mean, that should rip your heart apart. This is a friend of mine who I care about deeply, who has an eternity set in a course that I'm so scared for him. And the reason that he's going down that course is because people like me are acting in ways that he doesn't like and aren't in line with what the Bible says. Gandhi himself said this. He says, I love your Christ but I hate your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. You know, I mean, like, it's kind of weird to quote Gandhi from, the front of, from a sermon, but this is the thing is that if we put Jesus first in everything, if we radically love Jesus in every way and radically love our, our neighbors as ourselves, people can't hold that against, against us anymore. If we do that properly, people are going to notice. So 
Um, this, this is exactly what's going on. I mean, and, and this, is, this is my biggest concern for America, okay, in, in some capacity for the church. And this is, above everything else, I need you to hear this. Okay, if you've heard nothing else from this sermon, I need you to hear this, this next phrase. I'm actually going to invite the worship team um, to come up as we close. Um, if you hear nothing else, um, hear this. Just because laws are changing here in America that are not in line with what we believe, just because things are happening here that we don't like, and I'm, I really mean this, Jesus is not losing. Amen? Jesus is not losing. Jesus has already won. Okay, this is one of the main things that the devil does is he tries to convince you that he is equal with Jesus. He's not even close. He's already lost. And all he's trying to do is make you think that there is still a chance that he could win. No, he's, he's lost. He's trying to pull as many people down with him before he goes. Jesus is not losing. He has already won. He is the Lord of everything. He is the King of all kings. He beat death. He beat everything that we face. Every piece of morality that we wrestle with, he has beaten it. Jesus is not losing. And the church may not have the same level of authority that we've had, but Jesus is not losing. The gospel is spreading. Look at other countries out in Asia that have so much oppression and persecution. They're growing. Radical love for Jesus and radical loving your neighbor is growing in places where it's illegal. The biggest explosion of the gospel that we see in the Bible happened when there was so much persecution and people were being killed by lions for sport. Christians were being killed for sport, and that was when the gospel grew the most. So trust me, no matter what happens here in this country, if it becomes illegal for me to do this and preach, fantastic, I'm going to love Jesus radically and tell people about him. And I really hope you do the same because that's where true growth happens. Again, we've seen it, we've seen it tried when the, the church take over the world. We've seen that attempted. It didn't work. But what Jesus said was, go wash some people's feet. Put yourself at the bottom of the food chain if you want to make a true difference. So that, that's, that's my challenge to you guys. Look, Jesus is not losing. He has already won, and that's fantastic. We don't need to worry about that. And the best part about this, back in Ephesians chapter 2, that first phrase for anybody here who's a believer, and you were dead in your, in your trespasses and sins. You were dead. You're no longer dead. You're alive. You're alive in Christ, and that is such an amazing thing. Now, if you're not a believer here today, um, I don't want this talk of the devil and, and all of the bad stuff in the world to scare you into loving Jesus. I want you to know that loving Jesus and living for Jesus is the best decision you could ever make for your life because he is so, so good. Now, if you want to chase all of the things that the world offers, that's up to you. But if you want to secure an eternity of perfection and wonderfulness with your Savior, that option is available to you.